great to see all of you here tonight. My name is Andy. I'm one of the pastors here, and uh, really glad that you could join us this evening. I know you could be at home watching the Broncos play, but you're here with us, and that means a lot. We really appreciate all of you joining us as we are walking through the gospel according to Mark. As Justin said, we've been in this, uh, this, this book for months now, and we're really, in many ways, just looking at the life and the ministry and the person of Jesus Christ who he is and what he has done and really what it means for us to even follow him today. And this has been a really, really great series. Really for the last few months, though, what we've seen throughout the course of the gospel according to Mark really is, is a great insight into the public ministry of Jesus as he is as he's going from town to town teaching and healing and preaching to the, to the masses. But tonight, it's kind of interesting because it's almost as if Mark pauses and wants us to zoom out a little bit, really to kind of see like what else is happening uh, at the same time in the world. Because here's, here's what's fascinating, I'll, I'll say from the very beginning about this passage. This is one of the very few passages, maybe one of the only passages in the book of Mark that is about someone or something other than the direct person of Jesus and his ministry. It's one of the very few times that Mark ever does that. And, I, and when we come across a passage like that, I think what, one of the things that Mark wants us to do is pause and say, why would he do that? Like, why would that happen? Why does Mark suddenly shift? If he's telling us chapter after chapter, here's Jesus, here's what Jesus is doing, here's what it means to follow Jesus, and suddenly he pauses and takes a time out and says, here's what else is going on right now. We have to stop and begin to analyze, like, why is that the case? Well, this week, as I've been, you know, really kind of interacting with this story more and more, I think it became a little bit more evident to me personally why Mark might have chosen to do that because I began to realize that this story, in many ways, it deals with one of those experiences that is just so common to anyone who ever spends any amount of time around Jesus, and that is the experience of doubt. Doubt. It's one of those, uh, those, those experiences that just seems like from the story of Scripture and even experientially in our own lives that uh, there's this inevitable emotional struggle that we all encounter at some point or another. Uh, the closer that we get to Jesus, we just have this experience with the emotion of doubt. Now, when I really think about how doubt affects me, and re really even as I think about that for many of you as I interact with you and kind of hear some of your stories, this seems to be the case that this is actually a pretty normal part of our lives. This is a pretty normal part of all of our lives, whether we're talking about spiritual matters or we're just talking about different circumstances or seasons or people that are in your life right now that have caused really just a substantial amount of doubt in your life as you think about the future of your life and how it's going to turn out. Now, I feel like for me personally, when I think about my interaction with that, I, I don't know, for some reason I think that this has always been maybe like the default posture in my mind uh, and my approach to life in many ways. Uh, this just comes very naturally to me. I'm not sure why, but I think the area of my life that I see this and, and probably feel this the most often, you might, you might relate with this, is, is typically within relationships. I mean, it's just typically within relationships. I, I think especially about my relationship with Angela, my wife, and how it started. And I think about those first few weeks. And if, you, if you've been in a relationship, you know, those first few weeks, don't they feel extraordinarily fragile. You're like, I'm not sure how this is going to work out. I remember one of the very first dates I took Angela on, and after the date, I remember texting her just to say, hey, just wanted to let you know I had a really great time. And then what happens? You know, like a few minutes go by, no response, 
five minutes turned into 10 minutes, 10 minutes turned into 15 minutes. And by that point, like I've already, like, I've already realized I know exactly what's happening right now. She's in her apartment with all of her roommates. They're sitting there and collectively they're brainstorming a response to figure out how do we softly let him down and let him know that you're not interested. I mean, I know that is exactly what's happening right now. There's no other excuse. There's no other reason in the world that she would not have responded yet to this message. And, you know, that's my, that seems to be my natural default throughout all the circumstances in life to kind of jump to worst case scenario. Now, maybe I'm the only one, maybe I'm the only one who thinks like that. Um, I don't, I don't think I am though. I mean, I think I, I've interacted with enough of you here to know like the stories of your lives and really the, the circumstances that seem to have filled it for a variety of reasons. You know that there are circumstances and there are relationships and there are past experiences that really cause, really to bring just a substantial amount of doubt and fear into your own life. Even right now, some of you have serious doubts about how the future of your life is going to turn out. Maybe it's the future of this week or the future of this month or the future of the remainder of this year. So as we jump into this passage tonight, here's the assumption that I'm essentially working off of today. Many of you struggle with doubt. You have doubts about God. You have doubts about other people. You have doubts about yourself, about the relationships you're in, about the job you're working, your friendships, your faith, your future. All those things, either right now or at some point, you wrestle with doubting how they will turn out. And so as, as we jump into this tonight, here's, let me just even say this on the front end. Hopefully you know this, but in case you don't, if you're new here, I want you to know, I want you to believe even that this is a safe place to wrestle with doubts. I want you to know that. This, you need to know that. This is a safe place. If you find yourself somebody who, who's, who's characteristically struggling with doubt, that this is a safe place. Secondly, though, I believe this is what Mark's really going to be showing us in this passage tonight, is you also need to, need, you need to know what to do with those doubts. Like, you need to know what to do with them. Ultimately, you need to know where to take them. Because really, I think that the point of this entire passage is Mark is essentially telling us that what you do with your doubt really matters, that there's a really healthy way to handle your doubt, and there's actually a really harmful way to handle your doubt as well. And we want to be able to do this really, really well. So Mark is going to actually give us, I think this is fascinating, he actually gives us a case study. Where he's going to, we're going to look at two different examples, two different men, John the Baptist and Herod the king. And, and tonight, as we look at these two men, what we're going, to both, we're going to see is, while both of these men are very, very different in many ways, and their lives are going to end in very different ways, they actually share some very similar experiences with doubt, particularly when it comes to understanding their relationship to Jesus Christ and what it means to follow him. So that's what we're going to do tonight. We're going to look at these two different men, and we're going to start with John the Baptist. So uh, John, we're going to begin with him. At, we look in verse 14 here. If you want to look back at your Bible, we're going to be looking at that a good bit tonight. Verse 14, it says, King Herod heard of it. He's referring to really what we saw last week as Jesus' ministry is really kind of growing and he's sending out his disciples two by two. King Herod heard of it, for Jesus' name had become known. Some said John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. This is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others said he's Elijah, and others said he is a prophet like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. For it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, it's not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. Now, 
If you were with us at the beginning of this year, you might remember us talking about John the Baptist. Uh, John, we, we talked about him in the very, very beginning of this series. John was actually one of Jesus' cousins, and John's also, to be honest, he's kind of a strange guy. I mean, he's a little bit different. We'd probably call him today kind of socially awkward, and, and it's true, but he really believed the Lord, and, and he really cared about people. So consequently, he was really committed just to helping people get their lives back together and really make the relationship between them, the people of God, and their God, really to make that relationship right again. And he was really committed to doing that. Now, the interesting thing about this is despite how awkward John could have been, he was actually really good at this. I mean, really, really good at this. He would go out and he would just begin teaching out in the public. And suddenly you would just see hundreds, even thousands of people gathering around to listen to him. I mean, you were having men and women, you were having the rich, the poor, the religious, the irreligious, everybody that was so fascinated with what John had to say, they couldn't help but to come and gather and listen to him. And not just listen, but they were actually converting. I mean, they were converting to the Christian faith. They were lining up, waiting to be baptized as a sign of their decision to follow Jesus Christ. Now, this was really, really fascinating because... Uh, as John is leading this, and people are converting to the Christian faith, and, and really, he's really kind of gaining a reputation as a pretty highly respected, godly man with a huge following. Uh, he's really kind of at the height of his career. Now, fascinatingly enough, something else happens at this same exact time. This is kind of where we pick up our story even here in Mark 6. Because at the same time that John's popularity is at its peak, and where he's becoming quite this public figure, at the exact same time this, this is happening, there's someone else who's also gaining a lot of uh, press. And this is Herod. Herod, Herod, son of Herod the Great, ruler of Galilee, liaison to Rome, and a newly married husband. Now, for me to kind of explain why this is uh, so controversial, it would take a really, really long time. But here's kind of the basic gist of what happened. Now, Herod decides to marry a woman named Herodias, which is kind of cute at first. I mean, it's almost like they have matching names, like Herod and Herod, Herodias. And uh, it sounds kind of cute at first until it's just not very cute at all. Because as verse 17 shows us, Herod not only stole Herodias from his brother Philip, who was still alive, uh, but Herodias, his new wife, is also Herod's niece. So basically, he just married a woman who is simultaneously his wife slash ex-sister-in-law slash niece. I know, cute, redneck family joke, but that's what this was. I mean, this was an ancestral relationship. Both Herod and Herodias, they were already married when they met, ditched their previous spouses. And consequently, the people of Galilee were outraged at the moral corruption that's happening here. And you can probably understand what this is like. I mean, if this happened today and the president kicked Michelle out of the White House so that he could marry his brother's wife slash niece, I mean, that, we wouldn't just be like, oh, okay, like, I hope he's happy. Like, no, we'd be like, there would be public outcry. And that's exactly what was happening in Galilee at the time. Now, John, John the Baptist, while attempting to lead the people of God back into right relationship with God, he knew I mean, he knew because of what was going on at the highest level of political leadership within the land, he knew that he had to do at least something. He had to at least say something. It was like, really for him, just it was a moral obligation. He's basically saying, I just, I just can't stand idly by and not say something about what's happening here, which, let's be honest, I mean, that's really difficult for a lot of us to do today, Right? 
I mean, that can be so, so challenging for many of us. Even if we don't have a public platform or we don't consider ourselves public figures, taking a stance on a controversial issue, whatever it might be, I mean, there are times where this is just so difficult. I know many of you. I mean, the stories, the conversations I've been able to have with so many of you about maybe your workplaces or your neighborhoods, and you tell me about the conversations that tend to pop up from time to time within your workplace or the conversations that pop up with your neighbors, the jokes that are being told. And I mean, this is, this is anything, whether it's a social issue or a religious issue or a sexual issue. These conversations pop up, and everybody seems to be in agreement or everybody's laughing, and you're like oh, how do I, like, what do I do in a moment like this? Like, I, I kind of want to say something. I feel like I should say something, but at the same time, I'd prefer to delicately dance around this so that I don't have to say anything and people will still like me and not think I am a weirdo. Or maybe it's not even a social issue, but maybe you've got a coworker or a friend and like, they're just kind of opening up and telling you about some of the decisions that they're making right now with a boyfriend or with their girlfriend and you're like, man, like, I'm not sure what to say right now, but that just seems particularly unwise. Like, I am really, really nervous for you. That seems like a terribly self-destructive decision that you're making right now. And I wish I could tell you, I wish I could kind of just push you towards understanding how Jesus has something so much better for you, that there's a better way to live, there's a better way to make this decision. But I'm kind of afraid what might happen if I do. I, I'm just being honest. I'm kind of afraid, like, if I say something, I'm not sure how you're going to respond in a moment like this. And I, I know, I mean, those situations, you deal with those situations so often in your workplace, and they are so difficult. And, and as you're faced with them, uh, and you realize how tricky it is to respond rightly, I'll tell you what, this is why I've really grown to, uh, to love and in many ways appreciate this story, particularly John the Baptist. And I think he gives us such a healthy model here for how to navigate these really difficult circumstances because John, here's what he's going to do. He's going to basically model for us two really important realities. All right, He's going to model for us two really important realities. The first one is the courage to act in the midst of social pressure. The courage to act in the midst of social pressure. Now, I... I feel like I just got to believe that John was just as susceptible, susceptible to many of the same exact fears or pressures that we face today. I mean, he was human. He was kind of encountering the same type of, of pushback and people's opinions. And even for John, he knew what he was going up against. I mean, prophets who publicly denounce the king typically don't fare well. So he knew where this would land him, but ultimately he saw what was happening and he knew on top of that, at the end of the day, I've got to say something. I've got a moral obligation to at least speak. And so that's what he did. If you look at verse 18, verse 18 says, John began declaring to King Herod, this is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. He's telling Herod essentially, what you're doing, it's, it's wrong. I know it's not popular to say that, but, I, but I'm, I'm willing to say that because I think you really need to stop. In the verse 19, and Herodias, that's Herod's wife, Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death. Now, I'm not really sure why Mark chose to use the word grudge here. I feel like that's slightly understating things a little bit. It's like, well, I'm kind of annoyed. We're going to agree to disagree, and I'm going to kill you. I mean, Herodias, like, she's living. I mean, she hated John. He's calling her to repent and turn away from her sin and turn to Jesus. And, she, you know, unfortunately, she's just not one of those people who's joining the lines waiting to be baptized by John and, and, and turn her life over to Jesus. No, what does she do? 
What does she do? She uses her power. And within a matter of days, John finds himself in the one place that no one wants to be, Herod's prison, awaiting the end of his life, anticipating his death. In an instant, everything changed. Now, I love this story because even in the midst of of extraordinary social pressure, John had the courage to act. I mean, he had the courage to speak up, to say something. He really genuinely believed it was for their good and for their joy to run away from their sin and run towards the grace of Jesus, knowing that ultimately it would cost him, but it would be worth it. Now, my question, I think, for, for us tonight, and you know, I've really been trying to think about this myself, is like, where do you see this principle at play in your own life? I mean, where do you currently feel the need to speak up? Like, who do you feel the current currently feel the need to speak to? Is there a person or a situation or a conversation that just needs to happen that you know, like, this is important, I should probably say something, but yeah, I'm a little bit afraid right now. This is where people like John really inspire me. I mean, people who are willing to be courageous, put it all on the table, they're willing to say the things that other people are afraid to say, they're willing to do the things that other people are afraid to do, and they're going to do it in a loving, thoughtful, considerate way, Believing, though, that Jesus will be honored here and relationships will be strengthened because of it. John inspires me even to ask, like, what would that look like this week? What conversations might I need to have this week? What, what opportunities do I, do I not want to delicately dance around this week, but maybe even speak into in a really powerful way? Now, here's the thing. Uh, this is, I think, where I've really grown to appreciate the story of John even more because oftentimes when we hear this, I don't know if you've heard this story taught before, but a lot of times when we hear this story taught, it typically kind of ends there where it's like, look at John. Look at how bold he is. Look at how courageous he is. Look at how he's so willing to speak even though it's going to cost him everything. Now go be like John. Now if you're anything like me, I hear that and I think, well okay, <laughs> I'll try, you know, like I'll, I'll try for this week and see how that works, and it typically ends there, but this is where I think John offers us a whole lot more, this is where, I mean, I think we see the story doesn't end here, there's a lot more to the story, there's a lot even more to John, he's not that flat, he's much more human, and, uh, and this is where we get the second reality, the second reality is that the reality of doubt in the midst of uncertainty. The reality of doubt in the midst of uncertainty is John's sitting there. I mean, he's in Herod's prison. He's alone. He's abandoned. And, and he begins to do what probably all of us would do in a moment like that. He begins to doubt. He really just begins to wonder and to question, probably a question that you've even asked before in your own life, is Jesus really who he says he is? I mean, is Jesus someone that I can actually genuinely, fully trust? Because John's circumstances are, are really beginning to squeeze him, and it's pushing him to really doubt that those things might be true. Now, here's the thing. All of you know what that feels like. All of you know what that feels like. All of you know what it feels like when the circumstances of your life, they don't make sense, they don't seem fair, and when you compare what you're, where you expected things to be in your life and how they actually are, you know that there's a difference there. In fact, I could probably go down the line and ask each of you, 10 years ago, where did you expect to be now? Where did you expect to be now? Where did, you, where did you expect to be working? What kind of salary did you expect? What kind of relationship status did you expect? 
What kind of hobbies? What did you expect your life to look like 10 years ago right now? Because let's be honest, none of us, none of us hopes and dreams and plans for really messy breakups, right? That have surely been a part of your story. None of us really plans and and, and dreams about dead-end jobs that we feel stuck in but are too scared to get out of. None of us really plans uh, to get into a marriage that becomes extraordinarily difficult and we're just trying to survive within it. But those things happen, right? I mean, those things happen every day. Those things happen to all of us in different ways. And even in your short lifespan, I'm sure you've already got a running list of what ifs and how comes and why me's. And you're constantly tempted to doubt who God is and what he declared to be true for you. You know, John knows that feeling. He knows that feeling. In fact, in a moment of despair, when John's circumstances are at the worst, you know what he does? We know this actually from the, uh, from the book of Luke. He gets two friends, and he sends them to Jesus. And they ask Jesus point blank. John wants to know, are you the one who is to come, or should we look for another? Jesus is like, I'm sitting in jail right now because of you, so I feel like I've at least got to ask, are you the one that I've been, I've, been, I've been trying to build my life around, or is there somebody else? Because right now, I'm not really sure I believe. And Jesus, knowing exactly how John feels and exactly what John is experiencing, he responds in such a deeply compassionate way. He gives John's friends this, me- this message. It's so beautiful. In fact, I think it's going to be on the screens there for you. Uh, this is what he says to John. He says, tell John what you've seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. You know why those are such beautiful words? Because John would recognize that these words were the words of the famous prophet Isaiah, the prophet who spoke of the anticipated coming of Jesus. And these words would bring extraordinary comfort to John in his final days. It was like Jesus, it was really just as if Jesus was saying to John, John, I am. I am the one. I am the one who is to come. And you can trust me even in your darkest Hours. Do you notice what John did here? I mean, this is really remarkable. In the, most, in, the mo- in the midst of the most difficult circumstances, in the moments of confusion and doubt, John took his doubt to the one who holds all of our what ifs and how comes and why me in his loving hands. Isn't that amazing? I mean, here's the thing. And what you need to take away from John is if your faith is based on your ability to perfectly understand your past and your present and your future, then your seasons of doubt will become seasons of crippling faith. Because here's the reality. I feel like I have this conversation so often with with people. um, I don't know. I feel like so often we fall into this trap of thinking that there's only two ways to live, that there are only two options we're left with. Either understand everything and rest in peace, or understand very little and be tormented by anxiety. But here's the thing. Like, I, I don't think that's the only, those aren't the only ways to live. In fact, John shows us a better way. John shows us a third way. This is really the way of true biblical faith. The Bible tells us that real, sturdy, lasting peace, it doesn't rise and fall with our circumstances. It's not found in being able to understand every component of how and why your life has unfolded the way that it has. You will never understand everything in your life. 
And that's a good thing. So what John shows us is that true peace is not found in our circumstances. It's not found in understanding. It is found in a person. It's found by trusting and resting in the one who is in careful control of all things. The one who knows the end from the very beginning. Who's familiar with your every doubt before you even speak it. That's Jesus. I mean, Jesus knows. Jesus understands. Jesus is in complete control. He's never surprised. He's never confused. He never worries or stresses about, out about how the events are going to unfold tomorrow. Jesus never walks off the job to take a break. He never gets so busy with one thing that he neglects in another and never plays favorites. Isn't that good news? That's what John's teaching us here. In the midst of some of the most difficult circumstances in our lives, we don't just wallow in our doubt, but we take it to the one who already knows it and we find our peace and our confidence in him. That's what John's gonna show us. When we have doubts, It's not abnormal, it's not strange, it's not wrong, but we have to know where to take them. We take them to the one who already knows them. And that's a really, really comforting thing. So that's what John's going to show us. That's the first person we see. But secondly, we have Herod. Now Herod, Herod is a unique guy with a really crazy story. I don't know if you know much about Herod. If you ever studied history, you probably do because uh, we have more information about Herod really than really more than any other ancient figure in the ancient world. There are so many documents that uh, have been preserved about Herod, but the best way I can describe him is he comes up from a really jacked up family. I mean, Herod's dad, uh, they called him Herod the Great. He was a king. He was a brilliant architect. He was a city planner, but he was also paranoid. I mean, this guy was paranoid. In fact, the only reason why the Herod in our story is king at this point is because his dad killed off so many of his older brothers and cousins that he was just like the only one left in line to say, like, okay, I can step into this, which is kind of a nerve-wracking place to be because you're like, I might be axed next. But that was Herod, and, and this legacy was in many ways passed down to him. But at this point, Herod, in our story, he wasn't yet completely off his rocker, all right? So even though things are kind of messy on the romantic front. He's in this controversial marriage. Look at what Mark says about the relationship between Herod and John. This is so fascinating. Look back at me with me at uh, verses 19 and 20. Verse 19, it says, and Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death, but she could not, for Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. So Herodias, she's furious with John, but she couldn't kill him. Why not? Because Herod wouldn't let her. Verse 20, it says something amazing here. It says Herod wouldn't allow it. Why? Two things, actually. You see this in the beginning of the verse. It says he feared John. And then at the end of the verse, what does it say? And he gladly heard him. Now, what does that mean? I mean, he couldn't be afraid of him, right? I mean, John was in chains. No, he wasn't afraid of him, but when the Bible uses this word, anytime it uses this expression, particularly in this context, it means that Herod was filled with awe and wonder and respect. He looked at this man's integrity and he looked at this man's courage and he realized, you are the only one in the entire kingdom that's willing to tell me the truth, yet you're willing to speak. And he had a tremendous amount of respect for him. It actually stirred something very emotional within him. I mean, notice what this implies. After John the Baptist was put into prison, Herod would bring him back out. And what would he bring him back out to do? To preach. Isn't that bizarre? To bring somebody out of prison, someone who's just preaching to denounce you, 
publicly, and you're having him do that day after day after day. Isn't that a bizarre thing? Not just that, but, I mean, you're the only one in the audience. Wouldn't that be wild if, like, you showed up on a Sunday, and you're the only one here, and you're, like, sitting down there, all right, let's go. We're going to go ahead and start, and I'm going to preach, and it's going to be very, very personally directed towards you. Now, that would be so weird, but, but Herod likes, I mean, there's something about it Herod finds incredibly intriguing. He's inviting this in. Why in the world would he have John do this day after day after day? The answer is, on one hand, he, he did like it. He liked it. There was something about this that, that Herod found so attractive and intriguing, something that drew him in, that he had such a deep respect for John and the message that he was sharing. On the other hand, he was afraid. This word perplexed, you see it here in verse 20, it probably doesn't even really fully capture what Mark is intending here. Perplexed, in my mind, that kind of just seems like astonished or confused, but the Greek word Mark uses here, apareo, it's almost like this image, if you can imagine you're hiking down a trail and suddenly you come to a fork in the trail and you're wondering like, wait a minute, where do I go? Like I have no idea what to do right now. And you're essentially paralyzed with indecision. You are paralyzed in fear. You have no idea what you're going to do in that moment. I think that's what Mark is after here. In fact, that we're going to even be used, probably even a better way, to describe a person who wants to get on the trail, but is too afraid to get on the trail. That's what we have here in Herod. He's pulled, he's divided, he's attracted, and he's afraid. He wants to get on the road that John the Baptist is calling him to, but he's afraid of getting on that road because he has some significant doubts and fears about what that would mean if he does. Now, again, we all know what that is like. We know what it's like to face certain decisions within our lives that just seem paralyzing. I don't know what I should do right now. Many of you can recount experiences over the last few years when faced with what felt like a huge, overwhelming, life-altering decision, and it brought to the surface some significant doubts and fears that you might not have even been aware that you had. Maybe it was a medical issue, and it came out of nowhere, and you had to act right away, and you only had a limited amount of time and a little bit amount of information. Maybe it was a relationship, and you're kind of waiting on him to take the next step, and Nothing seems to be really happening. He doesn't seem to have the motivation. You're like, I don't really want to waste my entire life just playing the guessing game. And you're like, what's going to happen next? Or you have work situations. I mean, work, I, I feel like this is so common for so many of you here where you're asked to do certain things in your workplace that you don't feel completely comfortable doing, but you're afraid that if you don't, like it's going to cost you. There are going to be some implications if you don't agree, and you don't really have a whole lot of time to think about those situations and how you should best respond. You know what all those situations, I feel like, remind us? They remind us that we live in real time. And living in real time means that we're often faced with a very real window of opportunity that both opens and closes. That if we don't take advantage of an opportunity, if we don't act decisively, if we're not willing to do something right now about where we're at or what's going on, there's a very real possibility that we'll never, ever do it. I believe this is, this is really the very reason Mark is telling us about Herod. It, it's to serve as a warning. The story of Herod, gosh, the more I interacted with this story this week, I found this to be one of the, really, I think one of the saddest, most tragic stories in the entire gospel account. Why? Because Herod He's so close. I mean, he is so close. He's got John the Baptist preaching to him every week. He's fascinated. He's intrigued. He has this deep respect and appreciation for the message. But he's afraid. 
I mean, he's afraid. He's, he's got doubts. I don't know if I can do this. What will this mean? What will other people think about me? I'm not sure. And then rather than actually doing something with his doubts, he refuses to make a decision. He just continues to listen. To, he's, he's passive. He's indecisive. He's torn. And ultimately, here's the warning. His passivity, whether he intends for it to be the case or not, is an act of decision. His passivity is an act of decision. We see this actually in verse 21. This is verse 21. It's, it's, it's deeply ironic. Do you see what it says here? But an opportunity came. An opportunity. Opportunity, opportunity for whom? Herodias. Herodias suddenly saw this banquet, this birthday party being thrown for Herod and said, this is my chance. But the terrible irony, I mean, this is really, it really is terribly, terribly ironic, is that when Herodias' window of opportunity opened, Herod's closed forever. Because Herod had this window of opportunity. I mean, he's listening to John, perhaps day after day after day, and he had a chance to change his life, but he's just processing and processing and processing, never makes a decision. But when Herodias saw her window, she took advantage. She took advantage of that moment of opportunity. She was decisive. When she saw the window open, really, she took advantage, and Herod didn't, and his began to close forever because he didn't make a decision, and she did. She acted decisively, and he wouldn't. And when that window closed, it was gone. The opportunity to change had vanished. Now, when I think about that, um, it, it reminds me of something back from the summer. This summer, I read uh, J.R.R. Tolkien's The Lord of the Rings. Many of you also did here. I know with our church this summer, a lot of you joined in and read Lord of the Rings. I read it for the first time. Uh, I thought it was amazing. And um, there was something that struck me, particularly um, I read just this past week an account of Tolkien Anytime he'd go back and reread his own creation, his own story there, uh, there was a part, he said there was only one part, actually, in the entire story that would always move him to tears. There's one part that would always get him and move him in the most emotional way. Like, what do you think that is? If you've read the story, it was a part, it happens near the end of the second book, actually, and it's uh, where Gollum is about, if you've seen the movies, you know, if you, maybe you've read the books, it's where Gollum is about to betray Sam and Frodo to the terrible, monstrous spider, Shelob. And they don't know that he's leading them into the lair. And right before he's about to lead them into the lair, he comes back to check on Sam and Frodo, and he finds them asleep. They're sleeping there in the cave. But when he sees them asleep, something happens to him. Now in the book, whenever Gollum's eyes uh, become green. You know, th it, this is the evil golem. But at this point, the green in his eyes goes away. And so he looks at them and he starts to relent. He starts to shake his head and he's having this internal struggle, basically saying, I can't do this. I'm not sure that I can go forward. And there's this inter internal struggle. Many ways, I think, this is where I kind of see Herod in this. Uh, between these two options, he begins to reach out his hand to caress Frodo his knee. He's in the process of changing. He's about to change when suddenly, I actually want to read this. Sam wakes up. I think this is a really, really interesting passage. Sam wakes up. This is what he says to him. He says, hey you, Sam said roughly, what are you up to? Nothing, nothing, said Gollum softly. Nice master. I dare say, said Sam, but where have you been to? Sneaking off and sneaking back, you old villain. Gollum withdrew himself and a green glint flickered under his heavy lids. 
Almost spider-like, he looked now, crouched back on his bent limbs with his protruding eyes. The fleeting moment had passed beyond recall. The fleeting moment had passed beyond recall. Tolkien couldn't read that line without weeping. You know why? Because in that passage, he saw the way the human heart worked, moving increasingly soft or moving increasingly hard, but never perpetually neutral. I believe that is the exact warning that Mark is getting after by telling us about Herod. Windows of opportunity open and windows of opportunity close, and your heart is never perpetually neutral towards the love of God. It's always moving in one direction or another, either growing increasingly soft towards him or growing increasingly hard. And when your heart is soft and you're open to the things God is calling to, you must decide. Or that moment can pass beyond recall. That's Herod's story. I mean, it is. We know that at the end of Herod's life, the end of Jesus' life, he actually meets Jesus himself. And by that point, he had, he had absolutely no spiritual interest in the things of God. When he encountered Jesus Christ, he did nothing but mock. And consequently, Jesus did not even speak a word to him. Do you have doubts? Sure. Do you have fears? Of course. But when Mark and John and Jesus and Paul and every other follower of Christ would tell you that when your heart is being drawn to God, you need to act decisively or this too will pass. We do not have the power and control that we think we often have over the direction of our hearts. And when there's something that's just kind of stirring within our hearts that we know God is doing, maybe a willingness to follow Jesus, maybe an openness to change a certain part of our lives, maybe the conviction to repent for, for, some, for certain sin, or to ask forgiveness from others, when those things are being stirred in our hearts, we cannot let our doubts have the final authority and keep us in this perpetual state of indecision. But we need to act. We need to take our doubts to the one who already knows them. And Jesus, gosh, when we do this, Jesus is always so eager and always so faithful to continue moving our hearts towards him. So if that's true, I mean, maybe even just the question how to ask, if it's true, if our, if our hearts are per, never perpetually neutral towards the love and the call of God, but they're, they're always moving in one direction or another, either stepping towards God or, or moving away from him, perhaps the question for us tonight is, where do, you, where do you feel like the direction that your heart is currently moving is pointing? Now, where, where is the trajectory of your life moving right now when you think about the path that your heart is on? In fact, maybe the best way to think about this is, I mean, the reality is, I don't know, like, for many of you, I'm not worried about, like, what this is going to mean for you tomorrow. I'm not even really worried what this is going to mean for you maybe next week, maybe even next month. But as we think, I mean, as we think long term, as we think about 10 years down the road, 15, 20, 50 years down the road, the trajectory that your heart is on right now when it comes to the living God, Right now, like what, what kind of man are you becoming? What kind of woman are you becoming? This story is so helpful, I think, for us because it gives us this picture. Really, what we do in those times of doubt. Like, what do we do in the seasons of really difficult circumstances when our hearts are prone to wonder, when our doubt seems to be so real and vivid? And what Mark is telling us is that there's, there's a few different options. 
But the options that we choose really matter. One is really, really healthy, and the other is really, really harmful. And if we take our doubts to the one who already knows them, who is in careful control of all things, that's going to really work out for our joy. That's going to push us into a greater relationship with him. That's going to allow us to begin to thrive within that relationship. But if we allow those doubts to to overcome us, if we allow those doubts to reign supreme, if we allow those doubts to never be answered, and we wallow in those, or we just perpetually act as if they don't really matter, what Mark is saying is that that will be to your destruction. That will lead you on a path that you never wanted to actually go. So tonight, we, we just want to pray that as we think about our doubts and as we think about a church filled with people that I know have many doubts, that, that we would continue to be a type of people that are able to be honest about those, but able to also help one another turn to the living God and turn to him with our doubts and believe that he has our best interest in mind. Why don't we pray about that, and then we're going to continue worshiping. Father, it is... Gosh, such good news that you're able to um, not ridicule us, not uh, discard us, not abandon us when we find ourselves in seasons of doubt, that you don't just write us off or shun us for having very important questions. But in those moments of doubt, in those seasons of doubt, we know that you care. We know that you care so much. We know that you are deeply involved in being able to push us towards the one who knows exactly what we're experiencing, who empathizes and sympathizes perfectly. And I just pray for us tonight. There are so many of us I know that probably have questions and doubts and fears and concerns about what's going to be happening maybe even this week, this month, this year, when we think about the most important areas of our lives. And I pray tonight, maybe even be a night that we just can take those doubts to you. We can trust you. We can believe that you are someone who knows and cares and loves us. And I pray that that would just be in many ways the cry of our hearts, the desire of our minds, and um, that we would have the faith to believe that you are here. Father, we love you, we thank you, and we pray all of these things in the name of Jesus.